Luke 18, verses 15 through 17 this morning. Mary Lincoln was complaining to a newspaper man about her husband. And if you only had read her words, you might be surprised that her husband was the president of the United States. She said this, He's so like a child. I sometimes wonder if he understands that he is even the president. I cannot teach him. He will see them all, mere servants, washerwomen, anyone. He talks with anyone who will come, the wounded, office hunters, women with dead or wounded boys, and the more ragged they are, the longer he will sit with them and hear them. You know, and that's what she meant to be a complaint turns out to be quite a compliment. In fact, we're kind of surprised maybe as you hear those words that Abraham Lincoln, one of the most prominent leaders in the history of our country, would give people below him significant chunks of, of time. And it stands out to us because that's not typically how power and authority work. Normally, the higher the status, the less time you have for mere servants. And so we're surprised and we're encouraged when we hear that about a president, that he would conduct himself this way. And as we turn our eyes to Luke this morning, and as we look at our text, we should be even more surprised that we find the same demeanor, that the more ragged they are, the more he's willing to help. We find it in someone infinitely higher than the president of the United States, even one of the greater ones. We find it in the one that... The Bible says, the one from whom and through whom and to whom are all things. He makes time for even the ragged, mere servants. You know, as we've walked through the Gospel of Luke, we've seen the way Jesus interacts with tax collectors or, or sinners. We've seen how he interacts with the sick, the lame, and the blind. And now we see him interacting with children, even, even babies here in our text. And in all these interactions, we've seen this one theme in all of them, that Jesus delights to help the helpless. Jesus delights to help the helpless. So that's our first point this morning. In the first uh, verse and a half, it says, Now they were bringing even infants to him, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them. We'll pick up the second part of that phrase in just a minute. But there's quite a scene going on here in verse 15. We, we know that Jesus is making his way towards Jerusalem, and, and as he's making his way towards Jerusalem, it's not unusual for these large crowds to gather, for him to teach and to heal along the way. We know, we've seen these, these crowds can grow rather large at times, and we've seen that Jesus will... We'll get away from the crowds for some rest and prayer. And on this day, uh, there's lots of desperate parents doing whatever they can to get their babies to Jesus. And that's why the, the ESV says infants. You know, the idea is that these are really, really young kids. You know, infants may be a little strong. I'm not sure what age an infant becomes a toddler. Um, it, it really just means young child. You know, in Second Timothy, it's, these scriptures were read to you even as you were a young child. So it doesn't necessarily mean like newborn, but young enough to where parents are carrying their kids to 
Jesus. And so why, we might ask, why are these parents trying to get their kids to Jesus? Well, we see that in verse 15, that he might touch them. Well, the reality is, in this time and in history and in this point in the world, this was a, it was a dangerous time to be a child. It was a dangerous time to be a, a baby. Mortality rates were, were staggering. I was trying to look up mortality rates in the U.S., and it looked like, like .005. Well, some have estimated that nearly 50% of children in this culture would, would not live past the age of 10. 60% would not live past the age of 16. So as one commentator put it, childhood was more desperate than cute at this point. It was more desperate than cute. And these parents who may have in their mind that my kid has a 50-50 shot at making his 11th birthday, they may not understand everything about Jesus, but they understand that he can help. Jesus, he he has healed from afar, right? He doesn't have to touch somebody to heal him. We've seen that in the Gospels. He's healed with the power of his voice. Sometimes he just heals with a word. But in Luke, thus far, his touch has been associated with raising a young man from the dead. His touch has been associated with healing a leper, where you weren't allowed to touch the leper, because if you touch the leper, you become unclean. But when Jesus touches the leper, the leper becomes clean. Or, or we probably remember when, when Jesus is kind of walking through a crowd and people are pressing in all around him and there's a woman that has a, had this issue with bleeding for, forever and the doctors haven't been able to help her. What does she do? She reaches out and she touches the hem of Jesus' garment and immediately she is healed. And so we've seen that, that Jesus does have the ability to, to intervene and to heal. It's we've argued, it's a demonstration of the authority that Jesus possesses as God in the flesh. So you can imagine why these parents in this desperate moment were bringing their babies to Jesus that he might lay hands on them. They're hoping, it seems like from the text, that he would touch them and bless them and maybe this blessing would carry on throughout their life. Perhaps they're even thinking back to some of the stories in the Old Testament, like at the end of Genesis where Jacob places his hands on the heads of Joseph's children and he blesses the children. Well, they want Jesus to bless their children. Meanwhile, while these parents are trying to get their kids to Jesus, the disciples are pretending they're the offensive linemen for Tom Brady and trying desperately to keep these parents from getting to Jesus. You know, another image that came into my mind is like paparazzi just, you know, swarming a celebrity and some agent is there like, get away from my whatever, my, I don't know what they, my celebrity. All right, we'll go with that. All right, so, so the disciples are, are trying to keep these people back from Jesus. They're acting as gatekeepers. And, and I almost feel bad for the disciples because I, you know, I get the sense that they're trying to do what they think is right. right? I'm sure they see Jesus constantly busy, constantly uh, busied by the crowds, physically worn down from, uh, from meeting the needs of people, of teaching others. 
exhausted from traveling and instructing. And so when these parents are approaching Jesus with their children, the disciples rebuke them. They, they give a stern, word, sternly worded rebuke. Surely, in the mind of the disciples, Jesus needs some time here. right? Surely, he doesn't have time for infants. Surely he doesn't have time for children, for babies, many of whom won't won't survive their childhood. Jesus has bigger concerns. Leave him alone. But as we've seen over and over and over in the Gospel of Luke, right? Jesus upends expectations. He upends expectations. You know, we we even rehearsed that in the beginning of last week's sermon of how over and over in, in Luke we're just surprised where, where what we would expect to be common sense is just flipped on its head. Jesus often defied common cultural assumptions. And this is a time, and we'll see this developed even more fully later, this is a time and in a culture where children were not given the sort of significance that they're given today. Yet Jesus invites them to draw near to himself. So he flips the cultural assumption on their head. In, in the culture... They said children were insignificant, and Jesus says in verse 16, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. You know, before we, we dive into Jesus' invitation here, and, and, and then eventually dive into his really clear instruction in verse 17, I want us to, to pause. You know, this is sort of a, a, an application, I think, that flows out of the cumulative instruction that we've had in Luke, that Jesus does defy what was commonly thought to be true about h- how he would operate, how the Messiah would be, how God should conduct himself. And so I want us to stop and think, okay, so if God, if we've been instructed that God goes so differently from our typical ways of thinking then we should stop and consider that we cannot inherently trust our own assumptions about who God is and what He does. In fact, God warns us in Psalm 50, He warned Israel, you know, the problem with you, Israel, is that you think I'm like you. So we should stop and be very careful and remind ourselves that God is not just like us. We have to look to Him to reveal Himself to us to explain himself to us. In other words, we must rely on his revelation of himself to know his true character and his true nature. We can know God because he has revealed himself. Don't hear me say, oh, God is bigger than your mind, so he can be whatever Dan wants him to be and whatever Bunny wants him to be, and you're both right. It's not that. It's that we can't trust our own assumptions. We have to go back to his Revelation. So what do we know about God? What has He revealed to us? Well, He's revealed something to us in creation. Right? Paul says in Romans 1, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God, God has shown it to them. Well, how has, he, how has He shown Himself in creation? For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So God has revealed himself in the world. Creation testifies to the nature of God. We can see true things about God just by observing creation. Of course, 
uh, unregenerate man suppresses the truth of God in unrighteousness, but God is revealing himself through his world. We see God's wisdom. If you read Psalm 104, it's, it's just, look how God is so wise in how he designed the world. The lions come out and hunt at night, and the men wake up in the morning, and the lions are usually asleep. It's just wisdom, right? God is so wise in the way that he has designed the world. We see his power. We see his goodness. And we see his glory. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. They announce that God is glorious. But creation can only say so much. Right? So God has also revealed himself in, in words that have been recorded and written down for us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We learn much more in God's word that we cannot learn by studying even the, the, the beautiful Black Hills. You get explicit instruction in the word of God about God's righteous character and his good work. You know, again, it's, it's tempting to sort of press our assumptions onto Jesus and God. So we have to check ourselves against Scripture. All of us have probably heard someone say, I could never believe in a God like that. Well, we've got to press, we've got to look into Scripture to see who God is. We don't get to say, well, that's not my God. I want to warn us, though, you know, especially on a snow day, it's, it's, it's us, right, primarily. Um, even those who have been studying the Bible a long time, we have to keep going back to the Bible. Right? I was preparing to teach uh, like a guest lecture thing for Nate's hermeneutics class at John Witherspoon College. And I came across uh, th- this sort of warning for those of us who, who have a decent grasp on the Scriptures. And it's a warning about how we can subtly undermine the authority of the Bible for our own assumptions. And it goes like this. We we can kind of get dragged down this path. I believe what the Bible says. Whatever the Bible says, I believe. I know what the Bible says. Therefore, what I believe is what the Bible says. Therefore, if the Bible seems to be saying saying something that I don't believe, it can't be, it can't really mean that. Okay, you see how we can sort of subtly get dragged down this path where all of a sudden what I think is what the Bible says rather than allowing the Bible to continue to shape and form our own thinking that we might be renewed according to the Word of God. A better way for us to think about the Bible is I probably do not believe this passage as, as deeply as I should. I'm definitely not conformed to this passage fully like I should be. Therefore, I need this text. I need this text to correct me, to teach me, to renew me. Right? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, fully equipped for every good work. What has God given us to make us equipped and adequate to inform our doctrine and our behavior? It's the Word of God, and we must continually go back to the Word. God has revealed Himself there, and in revealing Himself, He reveals His will to us. A third way that God reveals Himself in Scripture is in Jesus. The author of Hebrews 
goes so far as to say that God has spoken to us through His Son. How has God revealed Himself? Through Jesus. So we can look to Jesus, we can look to the Son of God to see who God is and what He is like. Jesus said Himself, to see me is to see the Father. And what we've seen in Luke, what we have in Luke, is a, a, a careful, Holy, Spirit, Holy Spirit-inspired record of the life and ministry of Jesus. So again, we're back to the, to the Word of God. How do we know what Jesus was like? The Scriptures. So just keep, keep that in mind as we walk through this passage, that Jesus puts the heart of God on display. And we see in Jesus all the attributes that we find in the Father, because to see Jesus is to see the Father. And one of the things we see is a concern for the helpless. A concern for the helpless. These parents see it. These parents understand this about Jesus. They assume what the disciples have missed, that Jesus can and will help. The disciples sound more like Abraham Lincoln's wife, worrying that We can't have people of insignificance bothering Jesus. Jesus doesn't have time for ragged babies and their persistent parents. But again, we've seen over and over in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus is particularly interested in helping those who know they need grace and help and are dependent on the Lord. He's interested in helping the helpless, at least the helpless that see it and they recognize it and they know it and they don't make excuses about it and they just admit it and they throw themselves at Jesus. He helps those. We saw it plainly in our text last week. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. So we see in Christ that he helps the helpless. The one who calls on Christ is not met with a cold shoulder. Jesus' naysayers try to attack him and saying, you're a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And we saw that it wasn't that he welcomed sinful behavior, but he welcomed all those who would turn from their sin and turn to him. He did not come, he said, to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So maybe you've heard someone say, you know, well-meaning, but God helps those who help themselves. Well, we see in our passage with these little infants, these little babies, that God delights in helping those who realize they can never help themselves. Jesus helps those who admit they cannot help themselves. So Jesus then takes this moment, these children come unto me, And he turns it, right? He does this all the time. He turns it into a lesson. In order to enter the kingdom of God, Jesus says, you have to become like one of these children. In order to enter the kingdom of God, you must become like one of these helpless babies. So that's point number two this morning. We must admit our helplessness. Look what Jesus says there in the middle of verse 16. He gives sort of the reason there for... Let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Some of your translations may say inherit it. 
So we get Jesus' instruction here on, on why he welcomes children. For to such belong the kingdom of God. You know, again, we live in, in an age of youth. Our culture overvalues youth. Um, not that youth aren't important, but I was talking to Paul a couple weeks ago, and he was saying, man, when I was on the mission field, it was a different culture. They valued the wisdom of older people. He said, man, my beard going gray. Sorry, Paul, I should have asked you about this. Um, but it um, was, the, was the best thing that could have happened for me. I all of a sudden had the respect of those around me because I was older. Well, we don't live in that sort of culture, right? Parents are old fuddy-duddies, and they don't know. Children and teens are assumed to know better than their parents. Parents are blocked from hearing, uh, some, in some cases, blocked from hearing things that are happening with their children. So we might actually miss the force of Jesus' statement here if we, if we, again, just kind of read back into the culture, what, what we experience today. We would miss the, the, the shock of Jesus' audience. To those? To those little Babies belong the kingdom of God. The kingdom belongs to, to, to people who are being carried along by their parents to Jesus. And what happens is Jesus, again, he takes this moment and he turns it into a lesson where these children become representative of the type of people who will be in the kingdom of God or who belong to the kingdom of God. That word such at the, at the end of verse 16, it carries a lot of weight in, in the passage. It means to be like someone or something in the near con context. So those who become like this child, Jesus will say it really explicitly here in verse 17. Those who are like this child will enter the kingdom. And it's amazing. It, it, it's another shocker, right? If we, if we kind of bounce around the context of Luke here a little bit, we see... The, the ones who are welcomed into the kingdom are a shocking bunch of folks. It's, a, it's a, an infant. It, it's a tax collector. It's a widow who keeps bothering a judge. Yet the judge, the rich young ruler, here coming up next week, and the Pharisee, they miss it. They miss it. What Luke does is he sort of sandwiches these little helpless children between a Pharisee and a rich young ruler, both of which seem to have it all together, both of which boast of their ability to keep the law. The tax collector thanks God that he's not like everyone else. The rich young ruler looks Jesus in the face and says, I've kept all those commandments. And sort of in between those two men are these little helpless babies who can't do anything for themselves. They can't keep the law. They can't love God. The Pharisee and the rich young ruler walk away unjustified. They will not enter the kingdom of God. But it's a, in our context, it's a repentant tax collector and a dependent child who enter. And it's good for us this morning. Again, as mostly believers here this morning, it's good for us to be reminded of this, this sense of helplessness, this sense of dependency, you know, a question that I like to throw out every, every once in a while just to keep it on our brains is, is what is the daily narrative of your life? What is the direction of your thinking? 
Or, or you might say, what are you saying to yourself about you? Are you renewing your mind again according to truth? Well, it's good for us to remember that we are completely and utterly dependent on the Lord. This is true not only physically, right? We know that He, he sustains us as Jesus upholds creation. If Jesus took a moment off, creation would dissolve. He grants us each breath and each heartbeat. Nothing is owed. Nothing is certain. We are created people who are dependent on our Creator. And we're also dependent and helpless spiritually. You know, we've been learning in Luke that it's those who are willing to admit that they're spiritually bankrupt with nothing in the reserves to boast to God about that actually are willing to throw themselves at the mercy of God and find forgiveness. And you know, this is for, for believers, this isn't an, an exercise in just tearing ourselves down or being self-deprecating. It's actually an opportunity to see ourselves clearly so that we can then see Christ more clearly. That our hearts would be turned towards the glory of God's grace in Jesus Christ. As He came to to save sinners. It's not the well who need a physician, but the sick, Jesus said. As he came to save the undeserving, as he came to show grace and kindness to you and me. And Paul tells us, as, as believers, we ought to call this to mind. That is why we sort of go here as an application. Paul tells us we should call this to mind. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, for consider your calling, brothers. What is it? Consider, think about it, call it to mind, recall. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were, were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. If you're resting in, in, in Christ, and if I'm resting in Christ, that is, that's not an offensive statement. We can look at that and say, oh, Amen. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Why should we read this text and remind ourselves, even as, as believers, about our own helplessness and our desperation before the Lord? Well, Paul says it's good for us to, rem to remember that God chose the weak things to shame the wise, or the strong, the foolish things to shame the wise, so that God gets all the glory and there's no room for us to boast. All glory goes to God who planned, who accomplished, who applied our salvation. It is He and He alone who saves. And so Jesus uses this, this, these children to teach us this important lesson. That anyone who hopes to become a follower of Christ, right? If we want to think about this in terms of a discipleship section, where you have the tax collector who humbles himself, you have um, our text, and, and then we got the rich young ruler who refuses to see that he didn't keep the law, right? What do, what do we need to be a disciple? Well, we need to be humbled and admit our dependence on the Lord. So Jesus says really clearly in verse 17 what he's trying to teach. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not 
enter it. Anyone hoping to follow Christ, anyone hoping to be a disciple, must be like one of these children. So I should call time out for, for one second and say this. So even, even though we do see the heart of Christ in this passage for children, right? We see that he receives them, and, and Mark it tells us that he does actually hold them and bless them. It's important, though, for us to realize the text is not primarily about children's church, right? It's actually about helplessness, okay? So I don't want us to miss the heart of Christ, but I don't want us to miss the main thrust of Jesus' application of this story either, right? We love kids. Jesus loves kids. But the main thrust that Jesus drives at in verse 17 is this idea of helplessness, And I say that because some people have sort of taken this text and they've said, see here, this is why we should baptize babies. You know, I came across, as I was studying, multiple authors, some of these guys, again, guys that I respect, guys that I love, guys that I've benefited from, guys like J.C. Ryle, who see this passage and they say, you know what, we should do in light of this, we should baptize babies. Um, No, it's not there. Uh, It's instructive at some level that this is a text that someone would go to to try to prove that. Because if this is one of the best texts you have, it's not a great text. But anyways, um, if we're right, more importantly, if we're right that the children are representative, that the point of the text isn't that, oh, well, children were circumcised at eight days old in the Old Covenant, Jesus receives babies here, and so therefore we should baptize Babies, if we're right that children are representative of the helpless and the dependent, then you're missing the point of the text to try to read anything back into that, especially baptism. All right, all we really have to do is look at Jesus' words in verse 17 and we get the point. He says it really, really clearly for us. No one will receive the kingdom of God unless they become like this child. So the question, I've sort of been just laying out my cards, so this isn't maybe even a real question, but the question is, in what way are we supposed to receive the kingdom like a child? What are we supposed to do? Well, I asked my boys last night, we read the text, and I said, all right, well, what's true about children? And one of them said, funness. (laughs) Apparently as opposed to adult boringness. Another said, well, they... They believe stuff really easily. And you know, we had some fun with that. And, but my boys aren't the only ones that come up with multiple answers just by kind of trying to look at what's true about kids. You could read any number of commentaries and everybody tries to pick something that's true about children and say this is what Jesus is getting at. Some said, well, children do have sort of a natural receptivity. They believe stuff easily. I would, I would I'll probably argue that Ephesians 4 says that's a bad thing. You don't want to be unstable like a child tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. You know, many times my sarcasm has been taken literally by a child because they receive things so easily. Others point to to a willingness to trust. Some would point to a lack of self-consciousness. Kids don't often care that much about what people think. Sometimes, 
One commentator said that children never try to gain an advantage above another. Well, I don't know. I think he probably needs to get out of his office and go volunteer in Sunday school. Again, when we're reading the Bible, we've got we've to constantly be asking, what would the original audience have understood about what Jesus is saying? That's, what we have, that's the question we have to ask. And the danger is to read what we think about kids back into the text, and then we go places like we try to say something silly like kids don't try to gain an advantage. We have to ask, what would the audience in Jesus' day have thought about these little infants, these babies, these small children? And as we've been saying, the reality is that children were not valued in the ancient world the way they are valued in American culture. They were meant to be in the background and not to interrupt adult lives. Children were not honored. They were not sentimentalized like they are today. Now, that's not to say that the Bible endorses a low view of children, right? We just, I don't think it endorses the high view of children, like we said earlier, where Elderly are despised almost in our culture. But it's not to say that the Bible endorses some low view of kids. Again, we, we, we just saw Jesus making time for the kids that nobody else cares for. But it is to say it, it, it's, it's not wise to come up with a list of things we know to be true about kids and to read it back into the text. Not, none of these virtues and none of these things that, that we can say, yeah, sometimes it's true of kids, sometimes it's true of kids. None of these virtues would come to the forefront of a person's mind in Jesus' audience. You know, even in Matthew, right? Maybe some of your guys' minds are running to Matthew, I think chapter 18, where Jesus says, you know, you have, to be, you have to humble yourself like this child in order to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But I would argue, even there, I don't think Jesus is highlighting the virtue of humility that is somehow inherent in Children, we just laughed about it, right? They try to gain an advantage. It's, instead, I think Jesus is saying in Matthew 18, the same thing he's saying here. You must be willing to lower yourself to the position of a child, which is a low position in that culture. You want to be truly great? Take the position of a child. And isn't that what Jesus does in Philippians chapter 2? Jesus humbled himself. It doesn't mean he grew in his humility. No, it means he took a position. He went from a high status to a low status, and that was humbling. He was already perfectly humble. Instead, he lowered himself to a state of degradation in order to accomplish our salvation. So what is it? We laughed about what it isn't. What is the point? How do we become like this this child and receive the benefits that Jesus Jesus wins for his people on the cross that King Jesus has brought to his people? Well, I think what's been clear in this text is that you have to recognize that you contribute about as much to your salvation as these babies contributed to getting themselves to Jesus, which is zero. The picture is of of desperate parents trying to get their kids to Jesus because their kid is helpless and Jesus can help them. The idea is dependence and helplessness. A young child, an infant, I'm glad, I'm kind of glad that Luke used that word infant. I think it helps us. A young child is completely dependent on mom and dad. 
An infant is completely dependent on mom and dad. You know, some have advocated for, for abortion on the grounds that babies in the womb are dependent on their mothers so that the mother should get to decide what happens to the baby. Well, what's, what's the problem? Babies outside the womb are also just as dependent on their mothers. So it's a ridiculous argument. And so it's this absolute dependence that even an infant has that Jesus is driving at here. You have to become like that. Admit your helplessness. Admit your dependence. Isn't this the sort of thing that, that, that requires the, the love of a mother, the self-sacrificial love of a mother? It's, it's because the, the baby is absolutely dependent. It's also what makes parenting so exhausting. You can't say, just go take care of yourself for a few days. You know, a little baby is in need and knows that he or she is in need, so they cry out, right? They cry out and get the attention of mom and dad. And it's in that sense that, that I think Jesus says, you have to become like this child. You have to admit your helplessness. You have to admit your dependence on God. You know, we live in such a culture that values self-sufficiency. But it's hard for us to admit our helplessness before God. But it's the only way to receive the kingdom. It's the only way to inherit the kingdom. You know, there's been some debate about, uh, about the kingdom here. Is it sort of, you know, we... I hope you've been with us here, but is it, is it sort of the mustard seed type kingdom, right? The, the, the spiritual benefits that we have in Christ now as he rules and reigns at the right hand of God, or is it that future consummated kingdom where Jesus comes back to earth, he rules and reigns on earth in what's called the millennial kingdom? Which one is it? Is it the, the kingdom that Jesus said, it's here, it's right in front of you, or is he talking about, you know, this, this future? Is it the present benefits or the future benefits? And I think, you know, I don't want to cop out here, but I think the answer is yes. And it seems like both of these ideas are, are in the text. Um, there in verse 17. Whoever does not receive the kingdom presently, the kingdom of God like a child, shall not future, enter it. So you receive the kingdom in the present, you enter it in the future. I think both of these ideas are present in the text. If you think about the kingdom as, as the rule and reign of Christ, then to receive the kingdom is to humbly submit yourself to Jesus as Lord, to turn to Him as, as your only hope for righteousness, for forgiveness, for justification. It is to come to Him with empty hands, to turn away from self-exaltation, self-righteousness, self-sufficiency. It's to cry out for mercy. And all those who turn to Christ Jesus receive all the spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus, the forgiveness of sins, adoption into the family of God, the, the, the love of God, sanctification. But we still we still look forward to this future consummation of the kingdom. So as we think about sort of the present benefits of 
the kingdom, the rule and reign of Christ, the work of Christ. When we think about it in the larger story of Luke, Jesus' mission was to come and to seek to save and save the lost. It was to make a way for the spiritually impoverished, the, the sinner, to be reconciled to God. And we'll see, Jesus is getting ready to predict his death again. It was the death of Christ that was necessitated by our sin. Jesus has done it all, right? The only thing left for us is to cry out for mercy. Cry out for mercy. These are the ones who will inherit one day, those who cry out for mercy today are the ones who will inherit one day the fullness of the kingdom of God. When Christ returns to rule and reign on earth, you must receive the kingdom to enter the kingdom. So we see that this morning a a childlike faith, you've heard that, we need a childlike faith, and it's pulled from texts like this one in Luke. A childlike faith is not a naive faith, right? Oh, children believe anything you tell them. Well, that's not a strong faith, right? A childlike faith is not a naive faith. It's not a, a blind faith. A childlike faith is a dependent and a reliant faith because you see your helplessness and you see your dependence on God. A child, specifically an infant, is open to receiving help. Right? Babies are always open to receiving help. A childlike faith looks to the one then who delights in helping the helpless. We said earlier that we live in a this time that just so cherishes self-sufficiency, but we need to be reminded this morning that following Christ means giving that up. It means giving up self-sufficiency. I think the third Stands of Rock of Ages captures this point for us well, and then we'll pray and we'll we'll sing another song together. You guys recognize this, these lyrics: "Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to Thee for dress. Helpless, look for Thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die." That's the sort of helplessness that we're talking about from our text this morning. Let's pray together. Lord God, we rejoice this morning in the work of Christ in coming to seek and to save the lost. Lord, we freely confess and admit to you our helplessness, our inability to do anything to justify ourselves, our inability to do anything to reconcile ourselves to you, a holy and righteous God. Lord, thank you for making a way through Jesus. May we be comforted and reminded of the gospel this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.